You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. Before we get started with some Hannah Arendt, if you are interested in participating in our book club contest, we have a giveaway for Andrew Clavin's A Strange Habit of Mind. In order to be entered to win, you need to subscribe to our book club newsletter. When you are on the newsletter, we will announce who has won the Strange Habit of Mind copy. We have 10 of them to give away, so there's a good chance that you will get one. So make sure that you subscribe at solomonscorner.com under the book club tab. Once again, that's solomonscorner.com book club. Also, make sure that you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure it's a written review. You don't have to write us a love letter, but we love to hear your thoughts. So you can be quick. You can be preferably quick and clean rather than quick and dirty. So make sure that you leave us a five-star Apple review written, as my wife has said. Now, let's dive into the Hannah Arendt subject. We are reading The Human Condition, and today we get into the Cartesian Doubt and the loss of common sense. And if you know me, you know that Descartes has a special place in my heart, not necessarily of affection, but one of disdain. Well, he was a good guy, I'm sure. I don't know actually much about his life. But the point is, is that his thought really characterizes our age. For those that don't know him, he was the one who said, you know, I think therefore I am. You know, he gets lots of jokes. You know, you put the cart before the horse. You know, you put the Descartes before the the thought, you know, that kind of stuff. But Hannah Arendt is going to bring him in because he characterizes the idea that doubt really undermined man's belief that nature would present itself as it is. And before we can just rip Descartes to shreds, it's important to understand that the individual thinkers oftentimes are not the problem, even though their thought is the cause of a lot of bad effects. And just to show you what I mean by this, history swings back and forth on a pendulum, oftentimes between is reality in the mind or is it in the world? And do we do we come to the truth by experiencing the world or from internal rational thinking? Examples of this are all throughout history. So for example, you have Plato and Aristotle. They're trying to argue about what's the nature of reality. Is it out in the world? Aristotle thinks it is. Plato thinks it's up in the realm of ideas. Then you have Parmenides and Heraclitus. Heraclitus says that being is just a a stream, and when man steps into it, he never steps in the same place twice. There's your doubt. Parmenides says it's static and that it's completely knowable. And in order to come to know it, you have to recognize all of it is one. And these are very, very big generalizations, so you know I'm not trying to get too specific. But we also see even St. Augustine uh, mimics, or rather Descartes mimics, St. Augustine in his Cogito. And we're not going to go into detail on Augustine either. It's just to show you that throughout history you have this back and forth of, is it in the world or is it in the mind? Is it in the world or is it in the mind? And right now we're at a stage in which I would say we are emphasizing the mind as the source of reality, not the external world. And the dangers of emphasizing the external world would be something like this. Well, because my senses just tell me everything there is to know about the object in question, say a human being, maybe a certain person of a certain race, 
then obviously you can see how this would cause someone to say, I don't need to know anything else about that culture or that person other than what I see them doing and then make a blanket statement about everything. So that's the, the rigid aspect of realism and the dangers of realism. And Jill Sohn actually talks about this too in, in a less controversial example. If water as it appears to my senses tells me everything there is to know about water, then why do I need to do any experimentation on water. I already know everything there is to know about water. And so that's the danger of emphasizing too much of a common sense view of reality. Hannah Arendt is going to talk with us about, or write to us, about all of the Cartesian influence that's on modern society. And so she demonstrates to us that this is the time that we are now in, which is why there's this big, huge push for scientists to be the arbiters of morality, of thought, and she says that the cardinal virtues, which are uh, have been replaced by the modern virtues of success, industry, and truth. And what she means by that is that basically it's not so much the cardinal virtues of uh, fortitude, temperance, and uh, uh, justice, and, and prudence. It's these new modern ones because ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to innovate all the time. So scientists end up getting to be the arbiter. So in one sense, we've exchanged our collars and our sanctuaries for lab coats and laboratories. And fortunately for us, human beings aren't too much in the laboratory as the subjects to the lab coats yet. Um, but you can see this, this, this doubt. So basically, Descartes comes in and he says, you know, I'm going to start with doubt. He was actually trained as a Thomist and uh, didn't like all the bloated metaphysics, which is very reminiscent of the American Christianity today. There's not a lot of interest in metaphysics across the major denominations in Christianity. Classical theism is kind of seen as a old and dying uh, theology that needs to be completely redone, and in that sense, they, they are continuing in the Cartesian tradition of saying, we need to just cast off tradition and start over. And so we're going to find a new axiom. And for Descartes, it was, I think, therefore I am. And for the American evangelical, it was the Bible and pragmatism. And so this is why Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America says in the second part of his book, Americans are the most Cartesian group of people he's ever seen, even though they've never read any Descartes. And so one of the things that I want to emphasize in this segment is that in order for you to understand your Christianity and its roots philosophically in America, you really need to do some reading on Descartes and Thomas Aquinas, because those two thinkers are kind of the basis for a lot of how the theological, philosophical mutt of American Christianity, in my opinion, has come to manifest itself as it is today. So for example, if you can't trust your senses, then how can you know that you're saved? Well, you're going to say, well, because of what the, what the Word says, it says this right here, and so you put it into a proposition, and that's exactly what Descartes did. Well, if I can't know, trust my senses, then how do I know what's actually real? And he says, well, the proposition, I am doubting, therefore I must be existing, gives me certainty that I'm existing. So it all comes into the propositional rather than the mystical experience with, or the existential experience with reality as it is. Now, all of these Cartesian influences, we can kind of go down a couple of them, that would be how they influence, you know, 
culture. If you watch What is a Woman, Matt Walsh goes on the street and he has a conversation with a, with a woman and, and she says, well, I don't know if you exist. And he says, well, then how do I know that you exist? And he she says, well, if you want to deny that, that's totally up to you, but maybe I don't exist. This is the practical outworking of the Cartesian experiment into culture. And and we can't blame Descartes for this. I mean, there's plenty of good things that Descartes did, just like all thinkers, there's, there's good things that they do. But when their ideas actually find their way into the mainstream, there's no way for them to control what someone's going to do with that idea any more than somebody can control, any more than Apple can control what somebody's going to do with a computer. They might do some bad things. They might have some bad thoughts. But continuing down this, Cartesian doubt and how it really undermines a lot of uh, of the traditional structures, uh, which Descartes in uh, Frederick Copleston's History of Philosophy is characterized as as doing in, in more than just philosophy. The Catholics really put a lot on Descartes as well as, as kind of the philosophical basis for a lot of the um, Protestant Reformation. But as we look at American Christianity as a whole, and this I, I've seen in multiple denominations, not just the, the big evan- evangelical ones, but these kinds of question, questions kind of come up in Bible studies all the time. Well, if I'm sinful, then how can I know the truth? Which again, come back to a Cartesian doubt. Well, if my senses deceive me, then how can I know the truth? You're not my authority. Only my God is my authority. This is just another word for my own mental state, because ultimately their conception of God is what is driving their determination about what they should do in life. It's not an authority. It's not a priest. It's not a pastor. It's not even necessarily a, a person of Christian wisdom. It's their own. It's it's what they call my Jesus or my God. And Descartes runs into the same problem. He he wants to try and figure out a way to solve the problem of well, if reality is so deceptive, then is God super deceptive? And so this this Cartesian doubt really ties into what you think about God. And if you are in a culture that was completely and totally, as Alexis de Tocqueville says in Democracy in America, based on Descartes, then it's important to understand how this philosophy came in to the modern evangelical Christian, whatever you want to call it, uh, American experiment. Because you've inherited that as your theology. Doesn't mean it's wrong. You just need to understand that's where a lot of these ideas come from. It's not merely just a couple guys in seminary studying the Bible and then coming out and doing, you know, Greek and Hebrew and Latin, or depending on your dena- denominations. The last thing is pragmatism and success, innovation and the truth. Growing up in the church, you'll hear all of the time, well, you know, we went to so-and-so and they this many people prayed the prayer or this many people got baptized and so we, we take this pragmatism and we say, well, if God is in it, then there will be success and innovation. And this will let us know that this person is telling us, is, is telling people the truth in that country, because the word of the Lord does not return void. So we, we see this Cartesian doubt in the world, but that doesn't mean that you have to eject all of Cartesian thought. I'm merely trying to point out, and I think Hannah Arendt is too, is that this is the time in which we are in. We're in a very modern, Cartesian, philosophical thought. And I don't even think that Hannah Arendt would have imagined that this subjectivism would have come into a radical, massive postmodernism. We might find out later in the, the following chapters. But that's what it ultimately led to. If at the end of the day, 
you can think whatever you want to think about yourself, and that is the source of truth, which she says explicitly in the text uh, for our reading this morning. The, the basis of this is going to cause people to start to adopt some really strange ideologies, hence the idea of, well, if I can't trust my senses, then how can I trust my own biological material expression? then I must be transgender because I have these feelings and these, these thoughts. And feelings and thoughts are the ultimate source of reality, and they should paint my interpretation of the world around me. Well, I feel like a woman, therefore I must be one. Despite the fact that the reason why I feel that way is because my brothers called me a sissy in my entire childhood. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But in closing, what we find in the intellectual life, which is what this whole podcast is all about, and we have an episode on that at the very beginning of the season, we find that Christianity, I think, is, the, is why you have to have, is the basis for a healthy intellectual life. That, that if you want to have the most fulfilling intellectual life, I do think that Christianity has to be the core of your pursuit of intellectual things. And so we can see that just like we started at the beginning of this podcast, there's this pendulum that swings between realism and doubt. And this is an analogy for the human experience. You have these moments where you realize that, yes, I, I can trust reality, I can trust my senses, and then you also have these experiences where you're let down and trust, and all these things suddenly feel like they don't even exist. And we find this expressed in the Gospels. And this is one of the reasons why I think, just as an aside, that Jordan Peterson is so effective is because he is drawing these kinds of tensions out of the Bible in ways that pastors and and Christian leaders have often failed to do because for whatever really we we I don't I'm not even really sure why I think it might be an educational thing could be a lack of philosophy but let me give you just one example of how we can see this realism and this doubt analogously play out in the gospel we have Peter at the end of Christ's resurrection, specifically the resurrection, right? The resurrection comes in and causes a whole bunch of questions in the disciples. Jesus comes and he meets with uh, Peter on the shore. And Peter is not doubting whether or not he's sitting with the Christ. He's, he's in a depressive state because of the reality of what his senses are telling him right now that Jesus actually did rise from the dead, and Peter let him down. In Thomas, we find the doubt that is always characterized of his name, Doubting Thomas. I did follow him, and he died, and now I'm questioning everything I believed, and unless he shows up, I will not believe it. I was deceived, he died, so no, I will not believe, is essentially the idea of Thomas. And it's in the in the cross that we find Christ dies and challenges our perceptions of reality and then rises from the dead and reinvigorates us with an understanding of realism. And so it's this tension that should drive us to a pursuit of truth in the real and our minds attempting to validate what we believe to be the real. This comes into the intersection of the cross. At the center of the cross is what Jordan Peterson likes to say, we find not you have to be a realist or you have to be a Cartesian. We find Christ 
is the linkage between the two systems. And it's our job to make sure that we don't let one side of the cross outweigh the other. So this is the segment on Hannah, Con Hannah Arendt's human condition. And these segments are on sections 38, the rise of Cartesian doubt, and 39, introspection and the loss of common sense. So hopefully you found that this was beneficial to you. If you did, please leave us a five-star review, share it with all your friends, and don't forget to keep thinking.